Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Industrial Tool and Supply, celebrating the Makita Driving Innovation Tour with power equipment, interactive displays, and hands-on demonstration power tools, March 28th from 8 to 5, located at 839 North Main in Logan. More information at industrialtoolandsupply.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On this special Pledge Drive edition of the program, my co-host is Access Utah founding host and former UPR director Lee Austin. He'll be joining us a little later in the program. We'll feature a new conversations with USU Associate Professor of Journalism Matthew LaPlante and BBC host Dan Damon. We'll be talking about the media landscape in the U.S. and the U.K. We'll be talking about the latest twists and turns in the Brexit uh, saga as well. Here's the way you can support this kind of programming. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can reach us to upr.org. And uh, we bring in uh, Dan Damon uh, from the U.K. Uh, thanks for joining us. Hi, Tom. How are you? Uh, doing well. How about yourself? Great. It's one of the first sunny days of spring here, so oh, it's good. <laughs> I'm in a pretty good mood. <laughs> good. Uh, you're, you're in London, are you? Uh, just outside. I work okay. in London. I live just outside in, in the countryside. Okay. You have to know, um, almost every Brit uh, has a little bit of garden in them. They want a garden. Uh, okay, so you're, you're where you can have a garden. Exactly. Yeah. How, how is your garden? I guess you're just starting, probably. Uh, my garden is uh, fine, uh, full of Chickens and fruit trees. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, wow. Uh, you make me want to come <laughs> over. Okay. Well, you're very welcome Would, anytime. <laughs> Before we jump into Brexit, I think people are, are curious, uh, reading your biography here at uh, bbc.com, um, you uh, moved to Wales in the 70s, uh, presenting a morning magazine program, and learned Welsh live on the air. Well, that's true, I did. Um, there was a time when the Welsh language was dying, and uh, I'm afraid the English had something to do with that. They tried to suppress it. And then in the 70s, uh, there was a move to revive it. Um, about um, a fifth of the population was still speaking it then. And I was part of a, pro a project to uh, encourage others to learn it. And the, basically the principle was, if an Englishman can learn it, then anybody can. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Fortuitously, I met my Welsh wife. So at the same time, so uh, yeah, we do speak some Welsh yeah. at home. Oh, you do it well. It worked out very well for you then. Do you, and you still well indeed, yeah. you still speak some Welsh at home? Yeah, we do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and I do, uh, when we come to retire, I think we'll be back in Wales, and uh, that that will be uh, really encouraging because Welsh is now uh, much more popular. There's so much more TV and radio in Welsh. And the the project that the government, the Welsh government, has is to get half the population. As I said, it was about a fifth in the 70s. It's probably up to about uh, 25, 30 percent now. And by 2050, they want half the population to be speaking Welsh. Not, you know, all, all Welsh people virtually can speak English. So it's not that uh, they, they need that to communicate, but it's about identity and about culture, and I think uh, a lot of people listening will understand that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There, there is a linkage there. Uh, well, I wanted to get the latest on on, on Brexit. What I'm hearing is uh, indicative votes, and that the prime minister has essentially lost some control there. What's what's the latest happening? Well, it is. I mean, you join us at one of the most amazing times, really, in British politics. Uh, I think in in my working lifetime, and I've been around a while. Uh, 
what's happened is that the prime minister, the executive, if you like, has, has lost control. And now the members of the House of Commons have said, well, we're going to make our own decisions, and we might even pass our own laws. I mean, one of the problems, Tom, is that we don't have a written constitution, uh, which you do, and I'm not saying that that makes things terribly easy, but that's why you have a Supreme Court. But it, it is at least something that you can start with the rules. We don't have that. The principle is that the, the House of Commons, which is nominally the lower chamber, but the only one that's got any power, uh, selects the government. In other words, whoever's got the most votes, the party with the most seats, decides who's going to be in the government, and they are the executive. But Brexit has been such a nightmare that the executive, the prime minister and her cabinet, just cannot come up with a plan that the rest of the members of parliament will agree to. So now, with in, in theory, only three days to go before we leave the European Union, uh, they've decided, the House of Commons has decided that they're going to make the decisions. But once they've made those decisions, will it make any difference? Because the Prime Minister has said, all right, you can say what you think, but that doesn't mean I'm going to take it to Brussels and negotiate it. I might just, I might just ignore you. So, I mean, it's a total crisis, absolute chaos, Tom. Uh, I, I hear some cabinet ministers have resigned. Might uh, the, the prime minister, uh, could the government fall here? In theory, well, I, if, my answer is anything could happen. Um, in theory, the prime minister's safe because uh, her own party tried to unseat her in December, and they failed by a few votes. And the rules are in, in her party, the Conservative Party, that they can't have another go until the coming December for, for what, uh, 10 months. So, in theory, she is safe. Cabinet ministers have resigned, and more may resign if she doesn't give them a free vote. And, and we're waiting to see whether she will do that, because you mentioned indicative votes. What's happened now is the House of Commons has said, right, we're going to put all these different ideas to the vote, see which is the most popular and that's the one that we'll tell the government to go and sell to Brussels. But it doesn't mean that the government will say, OK, that's what we'll do. Uh, by the way, we had a, a listener uh, email a question in to just uh, kind of set the scene here. What, what time is it right now in the U.K.? Uh, the time now is just gone three o'clock in the afternoon. It's a yeah. lovely sunny afternoon. OK. Uh, what uh, uh, These indicative votes happen, I guess, late in the evening? Or when do they happen? Yes. Tomorrow... Tomorrow evening, uh, they will happen, well, they could start tomorrow afternoon, actually. They're still working out the system. See, that's the other thing. We've not done this before, to have this idea of the different members of parliament saying, OK, what about this idea, and putting it to the vote. So they're still working out the system. One system they're thinking of is to have a piece of paper, which apparently by uh, tradition has to be pink, uh, on which they will put all the ideas, probably seven different ideas, maybe more, and there'll be a little box, and then every MP gets a chance to tick which one they favor. Now, the next question is, is that it, or will they be numbered? Can you number them one to seven? This is my least favorite, this is my most favorite. And uh, then they will do a kind of uh, proportional assessment. But, I mean, you know, I can't make this simple for you, Tom, because it isn't. It, mm -hmm. it, it yeah. comes down in the end to the, the voters in the referendum in 2016 saying, by a majority of about 4%, we want to leave the European Union. The majority of the members of Parliament 
don't want to leave the European Union, and you've basically got a parliament that doesn't want something, trying to find a way to satisfy the voters in that referendum, and they haven't. So we're, we're just days away from, is it, if nothing else happens, is it a hard Brexit at that point? Well, that's the most likely option still, although, as I say, the majority of the uh, members of parliament, they don't want a uh, hard Brexit. But that is because just after the referendum, the House of Commons agreed with the prime minister's idea to set the date of March the 29th, which is this coming Friday, which was then two years ahead, uh, they gave her permission, all right, that's the deadline, now go off and negotiate with the European Union. Uh, it all seemed a reasonable idea at the time, and, and they voted overwhelmingly for that without realizing that actually you need some plan, and they didn't have a plan. So yes, in theory, we're going to leave with no deal, and who knows what that'll mean, uh, on Friday, there is an agreement with the European Union that that could be delayed until May, but only if some kind of deal is agreed. Otherwise, we're going to leave on the 12th of April without a deal. They've, they've given us that little bit of space. The, the trick there is that the House of Commons has to agree to that delay, and they haven't even done that yet. What would a hard Brexit mean? It's, I mean, the opponents are saying this is, you know, panic in the streets and... Yeah, I think that's exaggeration. I mean, you know, the British are famous, if they're famous for anything, muddling through. I think we're muddled through. There's been some talk. There's been some talk about uh, pharmaceuticals being in short supply. The latest is no, everything's okay on that. Um, if you want, if you love French cheese, there might be a bit of a shortage for a while until they work out how much tariff, uh, how much extra tax you have to pay on it. But I, I think we'll be okay. I think. The thing to remember is that it's trading that will be mostly hit because there would have to be tariffs imposed. And, for example, the Irish export an awful lot of beef uh, and milk into uh, the United Kingdom, into Britain. And uh, they're really worried about what will happen if there's, if there's a tariff on that. The British government so far has said we won't do that. But, you know, it's an unknown situation. I think panic in the streets, no. Mm. Uh, we've had a lot of people in the streets. Um, one of the things I do is I sit outside Parliament every so often with my program, and there's an awful lot of people shouting and with bullhorns and waving flags, some saying, uh, we've got to leave, and others saying, uh, and, you know, Brexit is something rude, I won't tell you <laughs> on UPR what they say. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it is, there is passion in the streets, but I don't think it would turn to anything nasty. I mean, there have been one or two incidents of people getting into fights, but really, you know, that, that, that is absolutely the tiny minority. I think generally we would get through. I've been seeing those, uh, you know, the, the video of that um, vigorous debate, often, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, <laughs> standing very yeah. close, vigorously talking. Is What's the, what's the tone? Is, is that good, solid democracy, or is it uh, something unhealthy? Well, it's, some of it's unhealthy. I mean, why did people vote leave? Uh, some were voting leave because a, slightly, a rather unpopular government, a conservative government, asked them to do it. For example, in Wales, which is the majority, the majority there, the majority government there is a Labour, a sort of social democratic uh, assembly. The people there were asked by a conservative prime minister who they thought was a bit of a toff uh, to vote for this thing, and they said, no, we're not doing that. 
Others voted in uh, some of the post-industrial areas of northern England uh, to leave because they haven't seen the benefit of the European Union. You know, down in London, it's meant that uh, coffee shops are filled with Eastern Europeans serving $5 coffees, which is okay for people who are in London, but it's not great if you live up in the north where jobs have gone or at least changed. They're, They're not the prestige jobs they used to be, and people voted to leave. Some of it, though, Tom, was what some would call racism. I wouldn't. It's a kind of fear that if your community changes rapidly, what's going on? And I've been to quite a few places where, because of the European Union, uh, a lot of East European workers came in doing hard work. I mean, I went to one place uh, where all the fields would be full of rotten vegetables if there weren't East Europeans picking them. But it meant that the schools, which had been you know, monoculture for so long, suddenly became these kind of multicultural places, people speaking Polish and Lithuanian, and people got nervous about that. And so they said, no, we don't want all these foreigners coming here. And uh, so that has been, to a few, it's been an opportunity to express racism, but a very tiny minority, but they are often an ugly and violent minority. I want to ask you about the, uh, the the Irish question here. This is, is you know, it's tangential, but but <laughs> enormously significant that the Brexit, however it happens, might threaten the peace in Ireland. Well, I think there is a danger of that already. There have been uh, some. Uh, there's been one bomb explosion. There's been uh, some attacks on uh, public buildings uh, by. The, the very extreme radicals. I mean, the, the majority of uh, those who were part of the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, have now turned into politics uh, because we had this Good, Good Friday Agreement in 1998, which settled the idea that, okay, people we're going to live together, we're going to share power, and maybe one day we'll be united with the rest of the island, but for now, that's good enough. There were some who were never happy with that, and there, there were some... Um, outrages, terrorist outrages, uh, that really died down. But recently there have been a couple more. Again, nothing very... Well, it's serious. If you're blowing up banks, that's serious. But it's not... Fortunately, no lives have been lost. And it's just a warning. Yes, that's one of the dangers, that if Britain is outside the European Union and the Irish Republic is inside, then you really cannot have two customs regimes without some kind of a border. You've got to check, you know, what's in that truck when it comes across. And so the idea of any border infrastructure frightens people, both sides of that border, because, as I've had it described to me, okay, you start off with a camera. You just put up a camera so you can see what the registration plate is on the vehicle, on the truck but somebody's going to blow the camera up. So then you have to put in a building with uh, some kind of guard in it. Somebody's going to attack that. So then eventually you're back to soldiers guarding a border, and that would be absolutely deadly. That would, that would really uh, cause uh, much more trouble and, and, and much more violence. So that's, that's the fear. Just a couple minutes left here. Uh, I, don't know. I, I don't know if anybody's crystal ball is working. What about yours? What do you think is going to happen? I, I think I'd be a fool, Tom, if I made any prediction. We are in such uncharted territory. I think, firstly, we won't leave this Friday. I think that the likelihood is that April the 12th will be the date. I think that once the House of Commons goes through this process of 
choosing which is the least worst option, if you like, then we will get to a situation where a prime minister who says she's not going to do that, not going to take their ideas forward, will have to be replaced. And I think the most likely outcome, and I'm not going to put any money on this, but the most likely outcome is another general election, another election across the country to try and pick a government which is clear of all this uh, history, this baggage of having done this negotiation pretty badly and got to a stage where nobody knows what's going to work. I think a new government would have some kind of a momentum to get a deal done. So I think we'll leave probably with the softest kind of Brexit. You know, we, we probably some of the rules will change. We might not have open borders for workers, but we'll agree to the kind of tariffs. We'll agree to share for, uh, free trade agreements and so on. Uh, and uh, then historians will start writing. As uh, I saw a joke the other day um, that... Uh, our children will hate us for this because they'll have to read about it in the history books. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Finally, Dan Damon, uh, we're we're in our uh, pledge drive here. We're raising uh, money. It's a different funding mechanism there in in the UK, I believe. Is that still working well? The, the government provides support, do they not? For well, to BBC? BBC, it's a bit indirect. If you uh, you have to buy a TV license here. If you own a TV, uh, or indeed you watch the BBC on iPad or on a computer, then you have to pay a license of, uh, what, about $200 or something a year. And that pays for the BBC. We have commercial TV. They're paid for by advertising. But, as you know very well, the whole model is changing. The BBC is now talking about subscription for some of its drama, which is very popular. And, I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, while well, I'm working with the BBC, but I think eventually that system of the license fee, paying for owning a TV... I think that would just be so outdated that we'll be on some kind of subscription system, which is, you know, I mean, what did what were Apple talking about yesterday? Yeah, that's Apple right. TV on mm-hmm. subscription. So I, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in a few years' time, that's the way things are done here too. Yeah, everything's changing, um, and uh, uh, well, we'll we'll be uh, we'll be glued to the television. We'll be glued to the BBC and to uh, NPR and UPR for updates on uh, Brexit. And we appreciate so much Dan Damon, the BBC host. Um, World Update, I think. That's the program. Yeah, your program. Uh, yeah. Which it is. I think it's, uh, four a.m. your time. Yeah. Uh, so. Early birds. <laughs> yeah, great, great program, great program. Um, so Dan Damon, thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's a great pleasure, Tom. Okay. All the best with your pleasure. All right. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Bye now. Well, we uh, very much appreciate that. That's uh, Dan Damon, host of World Update on the BBC, uh, giving us the latest on uh, Brexit. And uh, who knows what's going to happen there. Uh, Katie Swain joins me. And what a great example of some of the programming that you get on Utah Public Radio. Um, really enjoyed that update from Dan Damon, um, right from the UK, from the BBC, and um, here to your airwaves on Utah Public Radio, right into your homes and cars. And, you know, we actually carry a lot of BBC programming here on UPR, and this was a special treat to hear straight from them. But, you know, if those are the things that you appreciate and that you're looking for, not just updates on your local communities and local areas and national areas, but again, some of that international perspective as well that you get from the BBC here on Utah Public Radio and indeed on places like Access Utah, 
uh, when Tom has opportunities like this, then we can definitely use your support. And the way you can do that is to give us a call at 800-826-1495. We have volunteers ready to take that call, or you can always go online to upr.org or to the UPR app. Interesting to hear how uh, different it is right now for the BBC, how they receive their funding. Um, There's differences, of course, but here, at least, we sure do need your support. And you are the rock. You, uh, We do have other sources of funding. We get some money from the federal government. We get some money from Utah State University. Uh, and uh, But you know the, the largest, most important source of funding is directly from you. And, and as sources of funding change, and uh, Dan Damon saying the BBC, the source of funding changing there, uh, through it all, uh, we, we turn to you. You are the most consistent and uh, we, we lean on you. And uh, so, Kate Swain, I don't want to pour cold water. We, you know, we, we, we are positive about this, but uh, we're moving through the fund drive. And I think I saw in your, your email this morning, we're at about 40% of the goal. That's right. And, you know, something that we've been reminding you throughout the drive is that what we're really working towards this pledge drive is sort of a $60,000 um, financial goal. What What's being done, though, is we have some loyal listeners who have pledged a $10,000 challenge grant. And if we can get to 50000 by the end of the pledge drive, they will kick in that last 10000 to get us to our full goal. Um, the catch there, of course, though, is that we have to reach that 50000 in order to get the extra 10000 And right now we are at about 40%, a little bit more now. Um, we had a great morning, but we still do need your support. It is vital for us to reach that goal. That money is, again, vital for our operations and our programming, and you can help us get there, ensure that we reach that finish line that we need. Um, Please do so now during Access Utah. Show your support for this program, for the BBC, and really for everything that you love on UPR. Um, Do that right now at 800-826-1495, upr.org. Your support is needed and appreciated. And I don't know whether this adds to the appeal or takes away from it, but I, uh, Katie, I obviously take it personally here on Access Utah. I'm very heartened when the calls come in, you know, and uh, frankly a little depressed when when they, when they don't, <laughs> uh, be, because th- that is when they when the calls do come in, the pledge it's been great so far, and I'm I'm sure it will continue. Um, that is a, a, a shot in the arm. That's a, that's a vote in support of Access Utah and what we're trying to do here uh, on the program. So uh, your pledge right now is much appreciated. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Should say we'll go to break here shortly. Uh, when we come back from the break, um, my uh, my colleague uh, Lee Austin will join me, and uh, we'll be talking with uh, Matthew Laplante, host of our Undisciplined program. He's a journalism professor at uh, Utah State University. We'll talk about the media landscape in the United States. Matthew uh, has some very interesting uh, perspectives, I'm sure. That'll be coming right up. Uh, there are some great incentives um, to help continue the momentum. And as you mentioned, Katie, it's been a great morning. We just want to continue that. It really has. And this morning we were joined uh, during Morning Edition with Carrie by the dean of USU's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. That was Dean Joe Ward. And today we're sort of uh, celebrating some of our connections with CHAS. Utah Public Radio is a part of CHAS. Um, and Matthew Plant, who will be joining us a little bit later in the hour. Lynn he McNeil is as well. tomorrow. And Lynn McNeil tomorrow, yeah. exactly. We have a lot of support from them, but 
actually the bulk of our funding doesn't come from USU and CHAS, it actually comes from your members, which is exactly why it's so important for you to show your support during the pledge drive and to give us a call right now in support of Access Utah. Uh, at the $96 level, you can get our... Uh UPR Art Contest mug. We had a contest, and uh, the winner this year is Sandy Bell. And Abedis, AB, say, it, say it for me. ABC Darian. ABC Darian, thank <laughs> you. I'm a broadcast professional, so I can say these words. ABC Darian, and so it's a beautiful design and includes all the letters of the alphabet in it. Right, That's what an ABC Darian does. Inspiration all around Utah, yeah. yes. Uh, so that's for a pledge of $8 a month. Uh, a lot of options. Just ask the, the volunteer uh, when you call. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. We'll go to break now. When we come back, uh, Lee Austin will join me, and we'll be uh, talking with Matthew LaPlante. And the Center for Growth and Opportunity at USU, with the John M. Huntsman School of Business presenting the Eccles Memorial Lecture in Economics, featuring Dr. John B. Taylor. March 26th at 2.30 in the Perry Pavilion at Huntsman Hall. Details at growthopportunity.org. This is Science by the Slice. Power in Numbers. USU biologist Will Pierce is using data from the National Science Foundation's massive National Ecology Observatory Network to look into the future. With information collected from the coast-to-coast network known as NEON, Pierce will use evolutionary history to address practical ecological challenges, including wildfire, pest beetle outbreaks in forests, and insect-borne diseases. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. This part of Access Utah, we're talking with Matthew LaPlante. Um, are you, Matthew, are you assistant or associate professor? I am now an associate professor of journalism. Okay, okay congratulations. congratulations. Thank you. Associate. Thank you. With tenure and everything. Yeah, that, wow. <laughs> so we, we've got you around for a while. So, oh, and I can say anything I want now, you know? That's right. <laughs> That's we'll, what they say. We'll look forward to you doing that, minus any swear words. Um, so uh, associate professor of journalism, Matthew LaPlante, uh, who... Um, has written for publications, including Washington Post, Los Angeles Daily News, CNN.com, um, MLSsoccer.com, and Salt Lake Tribune. That's, that's where I first uh, heard of you, Matthew, now on the uh, USU Journalism faculty. Uh, Matthew, I'm interested, uh, do you miss the old, you know, the Salt Lake Tribune days? And do you think the uh, oh, Salt Lake yeah. Tribune will even exist in uh, <laughs> a, a few years? I, I miss it every day. Um, I loved my time at the Tribune. I loved being in a newsroom. I miss it especially on big breaking news days. There's no place that I'd rather be on a day when the world is changing than inside of a newsroom. Um, I 
I don't miss necessarily the daily grind. I don't miss feeding the beast, as you know, daily newspapers are wont to do quite frequently. Um, but I, but I do miss being in the newsroom. Uh, as for whether or not that newsroom will exist, I I think it will. I think it's going to look a lot differently. It already looks a lot differently now than it was when I was there, and I just left uh, about seven years ago, so it hasn't been that long. But things are changing quickly, and uh, I do believe there's still a place for legacy media, but. Uh, it's not going to be the same place that existed 10 years ago or 20 years ago. We're going to have to reimagine, reinvent, and, uh, and and accept a different place in the media landscape. So uh, legacy is kind of taken off on a negative, uh, you know, legacy voice of doom, right? Um, <laughs> right. Well, how, how will the legacy media, how should they, how will they survive? How should they reinvent themselves? Um, I, I think by not trying to be the latest and greatest, I think there's a place, I think there's a really important place uh, for traditional newspapers especially uh, to play a role as sort of the stodgy old codger that says, you know, like, back in my days, we took our time before we reported that, you, you know, like, just like, just the stay off my long kid kind of stuff, right? Um, because as our media environment, as our media consumption continues to get quicker and quicker and noisier and noisier, and we we really begin to understand that the content that we get from social media is is much different, not not worse, not worse, much different than the content that we were getting from traditional media. I think a lot of the things that we appreciated about traditional media at one time will learn to appreciate again. Well, um, we are doing what has long been called traditional media, and that's radio. And I started that in the 70s, and um, people have been predicting, especially since the day of the internet, uh, or actually when television started, that there was no place for radio anymore, that eventually there wouldn't be radio anywhere. I, I think public radio has found its its niche. It sure has. And I think we're showing that, uh, you know, like every every time you do a pledge drive and hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people come out of the woodwork to support public radio, it's a real testament to the idea that we have found such value in this particular form of storytelling and journalism. We found such value that People don't even have to pay, and yet they line up to pay. Now we gotta ask them, right? We gotta sometimes we gotta bend their arms a little bit, but they don't have to, and yet they do. And I think that's that's a real testament to the fact that the people who said in the 1970s, ah, you know, now that we now that we're moving toward this cable news thing, we're not gonna need radio anymore. They were wrong, and I think they're gonna be wrong about newspapers too, and I think they're gonna be wrong about you know pretty much every form of media that we've ever had is still around. Uh, you know, a few years ago, people were telling me that books. Are going to go away, and books are selling off the shelves right now. Or the bookstores. There was no place for an independent bookstore. I was in uh, in uh, Sanibel Island, Florida, uh, several weeks ago, kind of a family reunion, and they had a bookstore. It, it was packed, and it had books stacked floor to ceiling, and they were open seven days a week, and were doing a good job. I, yeah. I hope those places stick around too. 
I, and I think they will. I think they're, they're showing that a community bookstore business model still works. Um, and uh, and as long as I continue to see things like that, I mean, books are as, uh, you know, books are as old as the printing press, and yet we've still figured out a way to make them relevant in people's lives. And and radio is is one of the oldest of our you know legacy media forms, and yet we've still figured out a way to not just keep it alive, but keep it thriving, to keep it an important part of people's lives um and i i don't i don't worry about the state of media so much i i'm only interested to see where it goes i would be remiss if i didn't give the phone number right now because (laughs) i'm just thinking this this is the part right this this is fundraising week so uh (laughs) yes while we're on here by all means feel free to call in your pledge at 1-800-826-1495 or online at upr.org um that was done like a real true uh, old-time <laughs> professional there. That was the, the segue there was just perfect. They, <laughs> well, they do have a sign with the phone number uh, taped to the window, but I actually don't need it. That's one number you that got I will never forget. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, Matthew LaPlante, um, are paywalls going to work in, the, in print journalism? Uh, I think they will. I think they almost have to. Um, I've long said that uh, you know newspapers followed a really bad business model for a long time, which was give our product away for free. That that business model was never going to work. Um, but there was a. a Big, uh, you know, like a, a movement of groupthink among newspaper publishers and owners that thought that they were going to, you know, the 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 uh, old phrase was, you know, turn uh, turn print dollars into digital dimes, um, and, and it didn't it didn't work, right? You just can't. There's too much product online. What you got to do is you got to show value, and then you got to ask people to pay for the value that they receive. Um, you know, the Salt Lake Tribune recently went to a paywall model. They're doing okay with that. I know for a fact they're not doing as well with that as they want to, um, but I would argue they're probably not paywalling enough. They're still giving, I think, they're 10 free articles away. I, I, and I was going to say it's a soft wall. It is a you very soft wall. It, it yeah. is not hard mm-hmm. to get through, and, mm-hmm. and I, I certainly don't advise people to do it, but I'll tell you, I'll t- I'm going to be honest here, Like I often go around the wall, even though I'm a, I'm a Salt Lake Tribune subscriber, I'm a paid subscriber, but I don't like having to put in my login credentials all the time. Every time I'm a new in on a new uh computer or on my phone or my phone's you know like I, I don't like having to do that. So oftentimes I I get around the wall the way that people get around walls. I still pay for it, but um it's too easy. It it really is too easy to get around it. And I think uh you know there are other models like the Wall Street Journal's model, like uh the model from the Athletic, which is the new upstart sports reporting site, which are really hard paywalls and they're hard to get around paywalls and I think they're they're more valuable. Uh, Matthew, I think um, just this sentence, this line, this bullet point from your research interests, uh, get us into the next topic. Citizen journalism and the post-professional media age. And, and some you know newspaper editors I could see pulling out their hair at that phrase, post-professional. <laughs> I sure <laughs> hope <media> so. <laughs> I sure hope so. I don't mean, and by that I don't mean that I think that we uh, are headed into an age in which there are no professionals. I think we are headed very quickly. In fact, I think we are already in an age in which People, the people who do the majority of our content creation and our storytelling and indeed our journalism are not 
professionals, the people who start telling the story, the people who write the first draft of history are citizen journalists. And so my interest in is really in looking at how now we go about cultivating an environment uh, in which that is done with the greatest amount of responsibility and the greatest amount of thoughtfulness that we can possibly have uh, as we make this transition from from newspapers getting to dictate, uh, newspapers and television stations, radio stations getting to dictate the framing of how stories are going to be told and which stories are going to be told to an environment in which citizens have really made that decision long before traditional uh, legacy news organizations get involved. Are you talking about bloggers primarily? I'm talking about uh, people on Twitter. I'm talking about people on Facebook. Anytime, what I, I'm fond of telling people, like anytime you've ever been driving on the street and then you hit a pothole and then hopefully you pull over before you tweet, but you tweet it, right? You're like, ah, gosh darn it, there's a pothole on 700 East, or you, you know, that's an act of journalism. You're you're observing something that's wrong with your city. You're letting the world know about it, and you're letting your public officials know about it. That's a very a very small little instance of journalism. And every time people pick up a camera and they record something that that they think is wrong, right? Somebody hurling racist insults at another person or somebody attacking someone on the subway, uh, like we saw a couple uh, recently in New York, um, that's an act of journalism. That's happening before reporters with cameras and, and microphones and audio equipment and notebooks are showing up. And that's really setting the pace for what people in legacy media are now covering. Is uh, are there areas where citizen journalism maybe you could call it necessary, desirable, but not sufficient? Are there uh, holes? Oh yeah, but there were holes. There were holes in the legacy media too. So let me talk about that just for briefly. Then I'll come to your question. Right? Uh, we got three white men talking on the radio right now. Right? That is. That is <laughs> I know, can't look, help that. <laughs> and and none of us can help that. And and it's not like our voices need to be silenced. But this is a this is a very good example of what our media has looked like for hundreds of years. It was white dudes talking about things that white dudes thought everybody else should be interested in. And what the social media gives us is a more level playing field in terms of who gets to begin the framing of the stories that we're talking about um, and which stories are are paid attention to and which stories are clicked on and which stories are retweeted and all, and all of this. Um, and so, so, yes, absolutely, positively, there are things that social media, that citizen journalism uh, leaves to be desired. And, and those things are uh, not... A big secret, right? Like it's really hard to fact check people's tweets, and it's really hard to do that in real time, and it's really easy for really bad and sometimes dangerous information uh, that is false to to become part of the public square, and it's really hard to do uh, to do control over the quality and the content, as we saw in the shooting uh, in New Zealand, uh, uh, just a. A week and a half ago, in which was live streamed on Facebook, right? That would never have happened in a traditional media environment. That is a problem of the new media environment. But there were problems with the old media environment too. And what I'm really interested in is what can we take from the old media environment that was good? What can we take from the new media environment that is good? And what can we do our best to eliminate or reduce in both of those environments that was was never good or is not good? And let's get the best product moving forward. 
Matthew LaPlan is an associate professor in the Department of uh, Journalism and Communication at Utah State University. I'm filling in as a co-host here, just having fun. Tell me, um, so I went to journalism school in in the mid-70s, and everybody kind of knew what your career path was. Mine actually got sidetracked to radio because I already had a part-time job doing that, but then I went into uh, radio journalism. Who do you see uh, showing up to to start an education, and what are they interested in uh, a career path? Broadly speaking, I have two types of students who are coming into my classroom now, and I think that we see coming into our departments now. And I've talked to my colleagues across the country, and I think this is broadly true. Um, one... Uh, the, the first type of student is uh, are the people who have decided that journalism is vital to our democracy, and they're the true believers, right? They want to be journalists. And in the uh, current environment in which the media is often being attacked and often being attacked by the uh, by the executive administration of the United States of America, uh, they want to be in, in that fight. They want to defend democracy. They want to defend journalism. They want to speak truth to power and you know comfort the afflicted and all those things that we we tell ourselves in journalism school that we do um, and so I, I've got true believers and I, I feel like over the last few years I've got more true believers than I had even seven years ago when I started teaching um, and I, I think that is a result of of the current political environment the other set of students I have and that I'm just as excited about are those who don't look at a journalism degree necessarily as a means to a job in journalism they're not they're not antithetical or they're not uh, anti a job in journalism but they aren't necessarily dreaming of going off and working for a newspaper or a television station radio station or a news website or anything like that they just want a really great liberal arts degree which is broadly applicable that will give them some skills that will make them valuable in life and that they will enjoy along the way and and that's the other group of students that we have um and i'm not disappointed that i have those and i'm not disappointed that i have quite a few of those probably more of those than i have true believers i mean we've been teaching st- students Latin uh, for as long as we've had a co- higher education system, that's valuable. There's no, like I wouldn't mock that at all, right? I'm just, like, But nobody speaks Latin anymore. But it's still a valuable liberal arts education. Uh, so is history, even though most history majors don't become historians, right? Most sociology majors don't become sociologists. And most journalism majors don't have to become journalists. They can study this. They can come to appreciate this. They can develop some skills that will help them no matter what they do in life. And uh, and I think we don't market our degree nearly enough in that way as just a darn good liberal arts major. Uh, I don't know how much time we have together, but I do want to give you a chance to plug your program, Undisciplined. Thank you. So this is a, a program we started, uh, we're nearing a year now. Uh, the program is called Undisciplined. And the idea is that we bring two scientists from very different fields uh, to together in one studio, and we basically lock them in and we force them to talk to each other. <laughs> I interview them both separately. Uh, we kind of like lay the groundwork for what their research is about. And then we sort of open up both lines if if they're on the phone or, or we 
we point their microphones uh, so that they're looking at each other, and we ask them to ask each other questions, to continue the interview uh, on their own terms, and also to try to make connections between what they do. So, like last week, we had a venomologist and we had a behavioral scientist, and the week before that, we had an ecologist and we had a microbiologist, and uh, we do this every week, and it's just, I got to tell you, it's so much fun, and it leads to such interesting conversations and some really spectacular connections. And where else could you do that except public radio? That's right. You, that's right. You you can't. You know, Tom and I were talking about that just the other day <clears throat> about the fact that this this idea for this show probably could not exist on a commercial radio station. It's not to say that it's not engaging. It's not to say it's not lively. It's not to say that it's not good radio. I think it is good radio. The problem is trying to get that through, because it's such a 